I'm going to ask Denny Valesi to come up. Denny has pastored a church in, uh, in Orange County for many, many years. Uh, he's retired from that, but uh, he spends time helping churches. Denny is involved with us, helping us with our pastor search, and uh, we've got some great stuff going on. We were just uh, having coffee yesterday and talking about uh, some really, really great candidates that, uh, that we've got and some people that we're going to be talking to. And, and uh, you know, so there are some things moving on that, and we're excited about it, and we think some really great things are happening. But Denny is involved in, like I say, helping churches in a lot of different ways, and we're really thankful that uh, he's willing to come up and help us by sharing uh, God's Word with us. This morning, I got the privilege of sitting in first service, so I can tell you that you're in for a treat. Um, Denny, come on up. It's good to be back with you. Uh, it's my privilege to, to do this. It was great to see Roland's uh, wife in the back, and, and she joined us in the first and gave us a little update on how he's doing, and thank you for your continued prayers for him and his recovery. It's a uh, it's, a, it's quite, a, quite a season God has their family in right now. I want to talk to you this morning about the value and priorities that God puts on us being rightly related to Him. And I want to do so as it relates to one area in particular. And I want to do that by kind of expressing or uh, taking a look at uh, one of the Psalms. Several years ago, I did a series that I called Songs of the Heart. And they were a series in different Psalms that were written by David, who was called a man after God's own heart. And in uh, each of those Psalms had to do with a different area of being rightly related to God. And this morning, I want us to take a look at Psalm 49. Let me just read it to you. Just listen and see if you can determine what area God wants us to be rightly related to him with regards to the way we live today. It says, hear this, all you people. Listen, all who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The utterance from my heart will give understanding. For all can see that wise men die. The foolish and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they thought, though they had named lands after themselves. But despite his riches, man does not endure. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. But God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. Though while he lived, he counted himself blessed, and men praise you when you prosper, he will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life. A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. I want to talk to you today about the value and the priorities God's puts on us into being rightly related to Him, and in particular, rightly related to Him as it relates to our riches. 
our riches. I don't know if you realize it, but you live and I live down in Orange County in two of the most wealthy counties or areas in this country. And some of you are saying, well, you don't understand. I'm not rich. Well, let me, how many of you drove here today? Three of you drove. It's like the same, the same ended up in the first service. How many drove? Three hands went up. And I said, what are you, Orthodox Jews? Uh, this is a... Uh... If you have a car in your garage, you are considered among the top 10% of wealthiest people in the world. If you eat three meals a day, you are considered among the wealthiest people in the world. We are rich, whether we realize it or not. And as such, God wants us to pay attention to some things as it relates to being rightly related to him when it regards to our riches. And before we get into that, I want to tell you a story. It's a true story. It's about a boy named Johnny who used to play Monopoly with his grandmother. In fact, his grandmother taught him about Monopoly, taught him about life, taught him about business, and taught him about what it means to be rightly related to God in some way as well. When he talks about his grandmother, he says she was the most ruthless Monopoly player I ever encountered. If you were to combine Donald Trump and Leona Helmsley into one person, that would be my grandmother when she played Monopoly. She was ruthless. She was relentless in her pursuit of winning in that particular game. And she understood very, very precisely that the name of the game when you play Monopoly was acquisition. Acquisition. Whereas Johnny was enamored and kind of content with circling the board and collecting $200 every time he passed go. Grandma was different. Grandma bought virtually everything that she landed on. She bought, she, when she landed on real estate, she bought real estate. When she ran, landed on railroads, she bought railroads. When she landed on utilities that nobody wants, Grandma bought utilities. And when she ran out of money, she would mortgage her property and buy it back again until she eventually became the master of the board. Have you ever played Monopoly? You know how the game is played? And every time that Johnny rolled the dice, he would end up having to pay her for the things that she had acquired until the final roll of the dice took place and she would then, without pity take his last dollar bill and he would be resigned to quit in utter defeat. And every time they played as a little boy, seven years old, eight years old, nine years old, ten years old, every time he played, his grandmother would say the same thing. She said, Johnny, someday you will learn how to play the game. And for years, Johnny didn't understand what she was talking about. And then one day, when he's about 11 years old, he started playing Monopoly with some of the buddies in his neighborhood. 
They got the game out and they started playing and they didn't really under, they kind of all played the game like he played the game, but he became, kind of, something clicked in Johnny and he began to remember how his grandmother played the game and he started to play like his grandmother and none of his friends saw it coming. He just took them to the cleaners. He said, that summer I learned to play the game. And I learned how to make a total commitment to acquisition because that's how the, not only the game is played, but that's how the score is kept. And in doing so, I annihilated my friends. They didn't know what hit them. And I learned to be as relentless and, in fact, more ruthless than my grandmother. And then later that fall, the big day came. The biggest day of all came because Grandma came to our house to stay for a two-week vacation. And I was waiting for her with a box of Monopoly at the door when she arrived because I was ready for her. And she didn't realize how ready I was. And we set up the board and we got it all together and she never saw it coming. I began to expose my grandmother's every vulnerability. And then methodically and inalterably, I drove that old lady off the board. <laughs> it happened on Marvin Gardens. The day I've been waiting for all my life. She rolled the dice and I took that, I took my grandmother's last dollar bill and I made her quit in utter defeat. And it was the greatest moment of my life. I basked in the glory, ran around the living room. This was the day I had triumphed. This was the rest of my life was all before me. And then Grandma taught me one of those other great lessons. She picked up the board. She tilted it. And she dumped all the stuff that was on that back in the box. And she said, now, it all goes back in the box. All the houses all the hotels, all the railroads, even the utilities, all the real estate, all that beautiful money, it all goes back in the box. And Johnny rose and said, you know, but I don't want it to go back in the box. I wanted to kind of freeze that moment for eternity. I wanted to bronze that game board so that everybody could know, everybody would see it and know that I was the master of the board. And Grandma reminded us, and Johnny, none of it was really yours. None of it was really yours. It was all here before we came, and it's all here after we're going to leave. Players come and players go. But when the game is over, it all goes back in the box. King David understood that. Did you hear what he said? He said, a man who has riches without understanding is like a beast that perishes. Another way of saying that is saying is like a dumb ox or who's like a fool who's here today 
and gone tomorrow. The commentary, the biblical commentary, Matthew Henry wrote, back in the 18th century, he said, a fool is really as despicable an animal as any under under the sun. He's like the beasts that perish. In fact, it is better to be a beast than to be a man who makes himself like a beast. For like the beast, they shall perish ingloriously as to this world, and they shall not be indemnified or compensated for damages in the next world. In essence, what he's saying is that this would be the greatest tragedy of all. Jesus said it there this way. He said, be careful, lest you get caught in a trap. Get caught in a trap. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his riches. And he talked about that in a parable. A parable that's found in Luke chapter 12. In verse 15, it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said, Who appointed me to be a judge or an arbiter between you and your brother. And then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. It says, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I've got no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I do. I've got a great idea. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store up my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you've got plenty of good things laid up for many, many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you prepared for yourself? And then he said, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Have you ever thought about that? It isn't evil to have riches. It's foolish to have riches and not be rich toward God. So what does that mean? Well, I think it means to live every day with an eternal perspective. It means to understand that ultimately we're here first and foremost, highest priority, biggest value, if you will, to know and understand what it means to be in relationship with the living God and to understand that nothing is more important than that. Jesus said, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? And the answer is, it's not that good at all. It also means to live every day in that relationship mindful and grateful and pleasing to God in all that we do and with all that we have, including including our riches. David said, a man or a woman who is, has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. And so our question this morning is, what is the understanding that God wants from us? That God wants from people who are rightly related to him to have about our riches. And I think there are three things. 
three exhortations that I want to share with you. Here's the first one. The first thing that I think that God wants us to do with regards to our riches is to remember the Lord. To remember the Lord. To remember the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is preparing the second generation of those who were part of the Exodus to enter into the land. In fact, the whole book of Deuteronomy is, is really about the second telling of the law, the second teaching of the law. This is, you remember, God said he was going to take the people out of Egypt and he was going to bring them to the promised land and they got out in the wilderness and within just a couple of weeks, they just had had it with God. They wanted to go back and God said, you know what, that's it. This group of people, this generation of people is not going to experience my blessing, my promise. Your kids will. But this generation won't. So what was intended to be maybe a three-week, four-week journey from Egypt to the promised land turned into a 40-year trek until that generation had all died out and the next generation emerged. And as the next generation emerges, Moses stands up because God says, you're not going to lead them in, but you're going to teach them. You're going to remind them of, of what my laws are all about, what what God's word is all about. And, and then Joshua and Caleb are going to lead him in, into, that, into that land. But, so he teaches them. And here's the first thing he, he teaches them in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, I want you to be careful, be careful to follow every command that I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that God promised on oath to your forefathers. And remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers uh, knew your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And then down in verse 11, it says, I want you to be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and you're satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. And you may say to yourself, it says in verse 17, that it was my power and the strength of my hands that have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God for it's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers, and as it is today. And then he gives them this warning. He says, if you ever forget the Lord your God, and you end up following other gods, and you worship and bow down to those gods, those idols of which riches can become, as I testify to you against you today, that you will surely be destroyed. Yikes. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. 
Don't forget the Lord. Do you know how many times it says that in the scripture? I mean, over and over and over. In fact, probably the, the, the greatest admonition to the church, to God's people, is remember the Lord. Or don't forget the Lord. And you know why it says that? Because one of the surest signs of our humanness is our tendency to forget. Isn't it? Isn't it? Remember the Lord. Remember his provision. Remember his blessings. Remember his riches. You know, for us, every day should be Thanksgiving Day. And not just Thanksgiving for what we have, but Thanksgiving to the one who's given it to us. In the course of uh, our country that was formulated in the early days, Thanksgiving Day was a religious holiday. It was a day to remember not only what we have, but who has given it to us or provided it for us or enabled us to have those things. And we came to church and we did those kinds of things as to remind us, thank you, God, for the things. Today we're thankful for all kinds of things. But increasingly thankful to no one. Oftentimes but ourselves. Thankful. Every day should be Thanksgiving Day. Here's the second one. It is, I think God, God wants to understand what it means to honor the Lord. To honor the Lord. Proverbs chapter 3. In verse 9 and 10. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, and then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. This is an Old Testament picture of something that God initiated as a, as, a, uh, as a principle. But it was more than a principle to the Jews. It was a product of all that they were about. In fact, it, it was part of their lifestyle, if you will. It was an agrarian society, a rural society for the most part. And they would have these special days. The day in which you planted your seeds was a special day, a harvest day. Farmers understand this. It's kind of like we're going to get ready. We're going to get ready to, to plant day. And that's a big, big deal. We celebrate that day. And then there's this harvest season. And the first day of harvest is one of those great other kinds of things. And God said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, when harvest season comes, I want you to harvest the first tenth, if you will, of your harvest. And then I want you to stop. And gather that up and come to Jerusalem and party. <laughs> We're going to celebrate the harvest. And I'm sure people say, well, wait, wait, wait. We, we only took up the, the first fruits of the harvest. And God said, that's the point. I want you to honor me with the first fruits of that deal. Come to celebrate. We're going to celebrate God's goodness, celebrate all that he is, all that he's given us in this particular harvest. And we're going to trust him that when we go back and we finish that, he's going to provide for us in that regard. And he said, this is how I can show you 
my goodness, and also how you can honor me in this practical way. The first fruits of that was a tenth. It's where we get the idea of a tithe. It essentially became the law, if you will. Now, the New Testament isn't ruled by law. But the principle remains true. How do we honor God? We honor him by giving of ourselves and what God has given to us a portion, the first fruits, if you will, to expand his kingdom, to honor him, to show ways in which we trust him with the rest of our stuff, whatever that stuff is. David knew something about honoring God, in particular with his riches. It says that he wanted to honor God by building this magnificent temple. And God said, no, I don't want you to build me a temple. In fact, I won't let you build me a temple. Isn't that interesting? He said, that, first of all, I don't want a man of war building my temple. And you're a warrior. You've been a faithful warrior, but you're a warrior. And so you're not going to build me the temple. On the other hand, your son will build the temple. You, on the other hand, will make it possible for him to do that. You know how you're going to make it possible? You be, you're going to honor me by leading the way with all the people of Israel to provide the means for it. And David was a rich man. He was the king. And if you watch any of the Mel Brooks movies about kings, you know it's good to be the king. <laughs> There's a lot of wealth that comes from being a king. And David took all that wealth and he poured it into planning and preparing and facilitating this magnificent temple that Solomon built. And not only did he facilitate it, and not only did he give of his kingdom to do that, but he went beyond that and gave of his personal riches as well. And, it's, and if you go home today, I want you to read First Chronicles, I'm going to give you a couple of reading assignments here. First Chronicles chapter 28 and 29, and it will tell you about this conversation that God has with David with regards to what he can't do and what he wants him to do. And, and then chapter 29 tells you what David ends up doing when he begins to provide the means for this temple to be built. And it talks about his not only giving out of his kingdom, but his giving personally and how giving generously and then inspiring others, his leaders and other people and heads of families to collectively give. And they had this magnificent parade, if you will, of giving in honor to God. It became a celebration of honor to God. And it says the people gave willingly and they gave wholeheartedly. And I would imagine some even gave sacrificially. But there was this immense sense of giving joyfully to honor God. I'll never forget going to Africa the first time. And I was, uh, I, I went with Paul Eshelman, who was the head of the Jesus film. I mean, how many of you ever heard of the Jesus film? And we, uh, we set up, a, we went to this little village out in the middle of the jungle somewhere and Two guys pulled up in a truck and they set up a 
screen and a, and a projector and a generator and they turned it on and was, there was nobody around. I mean, it was an area about as big as this church and it's just trees and huts, you know, out in the distance. And as the sun went down, they turned this film on. Like 600 people showed up to watch this movie and they just stood there, you know, like this. And I remember going to church um, and in the middle of nowhere, we're going to this church and these people have nothing of what we would call riches, if you will. The pastor got up and he said, it's time for our offering. And everybody jumped up. And the band started playing. And they started jumping around and they were singing and dancing. And they lined up to give their gifts to the Lord. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I've never seen joyful giving. I, I thought, you know, if this happened in America, they'd shoot the pastor, you know. <laughs> When they got done with the offering, it said it was time. They were doing a building project at this church. Little church, middle of nowhere. And people lined up to give their gift that week to the building. They did it once a month. And they would come and they would give their gift. And the, the treasurer for the church would stand up. And he would say, so-and-so is giving one dollar to the church fund. And people would stand to their feet and give them a standing ovation. And the next person was $5, standing ovation. $25, standing ovation. $0.10, cents, standing ovation. And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness. We have lost some of the joy that is captivated in honoring God in simple ways that tell him we trust him. That we trust him. David was overwhelmed. Overwhelmed when he saw this remarkable sense of joy that was going on. And he says, and he's, he's watching this and, and he goes on to say, After, in chapter 20, it tells all that these people have, have done. It says, but who am I? And who are my people? That we should be able to give as generously as this. Everything comes from you. And we've given only what comes from your hand. We're aliens and strangers in your sight, as were our, all of our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided... For building you a temple for your holy name. It comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. I know my God that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I've given willingly and with honest intent. And now I've seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O oh Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in your heart in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. You and I may not be kings, but all of us, all of us can be honorable. All of us can be honorable. 
And when we do, we will put him first with the first fruits in this particular area. And we'll trust him with the rest. And God says he will provide. What does he want us to understand? He wants us to understand to remember the Lord. He wants us to honor the Lord. Here's the third. He says, so I want you to understand what it means to serve the Lord. To serve the Lord. You know, this, this deal of uh, serve day. What a great idea. I don't know who came up with it, but I think it's a tremendous idea to get the church out of the church, out in the community. Being the church. Being the hands and feet of Jesus. You say, well, what good does that really do? I mean, I mean we're not preaching. Oh, yes, you are. You know, the, what's his name? Uh, St. Francis of Assisi said, I preach the gospel every day, or he said, preach the gospel every day, and if necessary, use words. I love that. I love that. And we live in a time and in a culture where the community around us that doesn't know Christ is almost tired of hearing from Christians. They need to see it. And we need to understand that we need to earn the right to be heard, not from God, but from them. And how we do that is to live every day in a way that remembers the Lord, honors the Lord, and in particular serves the Lord by being the hands and feet of Jesus. The hands and feet of Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse uh, 17, Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Isn't that interesting? God's not a killjoy. It's not wrong to have riches. It's not wrong to live in America. It's not wrong to have stuff. God provides for your enjoyment, but it's not enough. He goes on to say, command them to do good with their riches, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, says, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You know what he's saying? Not only when we live this way do we bring glory to God and benefit to others, but we're thinking eternally because the reality is if you begin to think this way and live this way, you can take it with you. You can take it with you. you. Say, well, what do you mean? How do you do that? You can make an investment in people who could live forever because they understand what Christ has done for him. And when you invest in that eternity, in the lives of people, with your riches, with your time, with your talents, with your gifts, with your heart, with your heart, 
you could change somebody's life for today and tomorrow and for all eternity. There are going to be people in heaven who are going to come up to you one day and say, you know, I'm here because of what you did, what you said, what you invested in to make a difference in my life and my eternity. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what your perspective is with regards to how you operate your life. But I do know that if you and I are going to understand God's perspective on this, we need to understand what David said when he said to have riches without God's perspective on them is to live short-sighted. It's to live foolishly. It's to live like a dumb ox, if you will. And you and I were never intended to live that way. And the song from his heart with regards to this was Psalm 49. And if we could sing those lyrics today, they would simply be, remember the Lord. Honor the Lord. Serve the Lord. Among your highest values, your greatest priorities, don't forget the lyrics to that song. It's a song that will change you and likely change countless others around you to the glory of God, to the blessing of others, and remarkably, remarkably to your own joy. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We sang that song and we never want to forget it. Oh, how you love us. Oh, how you love us. Even when we fall short, Lord, you are patient with us. You encourage us. You teach us. You care enough to discipline us. You love us. And Lord, uh, remarkably, you can use us to make a difference in this world. Give us, I pray, understanding today of what it means to be rightly related to you in this particular area of our life with regards to what we've been given and entrusted with. Lord, help us to be faithful stewards. Faithful stewards of all that. And Lord, may it bring a smile to your face to see us live in such a way as to uh, remember you and honor you and to serve you to the glory of God to the benefit of others and to our own joy in Jesus name we pray amen I'd like to invite the ushers forward we're going to take an offering we're going to respond in worship this is Tim and Ramon I met them in our college group and we hang out we do music from time to time and we were working on a song and I said this song's perfect for this weekend will you come and share it with the church so this is called Garden, and it speaks from Jesus' perspective in the garden. He is our model for giving ourselves away. It goes like this. One, two, three. Won't you 
this fear has stolen all my sleep if tomorrow means my death I pray you'll save their souls with it let the songs I sing bring joy to you let the words I say profess my love. Let the notes I choose be your favorite tune. Father, let my heart be after you. In this hour of doubt, I see. just me so give me strength to die myself so love can live to tell the tale let the songs I sing bring joy to you let the words I say profess my love let the notes I choose be your favorite tune. Father, let my heart be after you. Father, let my heart beat. Let the songs I sing bring joy to you. Let the words I say profess my love. Let the notes I choose be your favorite tune. Father, let my heart be after you. Let my heart be after you. Father, let my heart be after you. As you leave this place, remember to love the Lord, remember the Lord, serve the Lord, honor the Lord. We'll see you back here next week at 9 a.m. for Serve Day. We will put some hands and feet to this. May the Holy Spirit bless and keep you in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week.